Welcome to the Gazing Conspiracy. My name is Katrina Stanton. I'm Yanyash Brodsky. And I'm Steven Zuber. This episode, we are going to be talking about signaling. And because it's December in the U.S., it's Christmas month. <laughs> I think it's December everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, definitely... it's only Christmas in the U.S., though. It's, well, no, that is also too. not true. Damn it. It's because it's December in the U.S. that mm-hmm. makes it Christmas month. Okay. So we thought that we'd talk a little bit about uh, lying to children about Santa Claus. Ooh, that's, 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 a, that's, that's one way to put it. Sure. It's a Christian holiday, but like my family does Christmas, we've never talked about the Bible or done any religious connotation to it. It's just kind of like one of those excuses that you have to get to get to together and get presents and stuff. Yeah, yeah. and when my secular there. Jewish family celebrated Christmas. In yeah. fact, my Aunt Susan... Use the term Christmas tree Jews. Hmm. That's adorable. Which I think might be a slur. I'm not sure. Oh. But maybe it's less adorable. <laughs> I uh, I didn't celebrate Christmas when I was a Christian, and now that I'm an atheist, I do. So, <laughs> Take so that. Christmas is a wonderful holiday. And like many parents, my parents lied to me about the existence of Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And you are very unhappy about that still. You no, were unhappy funny, when you found out. No, the funny thing is I wasn't unhappy when I found out. I was proud of myself okay. for figuring it out. Only much later was I offended about my parents, about the double standard of my parents <laughs> lying to me. Um, because, of course, it was so, so important as a kid that I never lie. Uh, but okay. I didn't get it when I was a kid. I didn't, I didn't yeah. get it. I just... My parents could do whatever they want. They were above morality. Mm, okay. So it was only later that that really kind of sunk in. Your parents were like gods of your world. Exactly. Morality does not apply to them. <laughs> I think there's a general bad lesson that may or may not be an actual thing, that when children find out that they've been duped for however many years about the existence of Santa Claus and the careful quasi-reasoning that parents do to explain how Santa can actually exist and do all that he's purported to do, I think there's an argument that could be made saying that, oh, it weakens their, their trust in their parents or something. And, you know, because, like, you, you use the words, you know, your parents are like gods to your world. And they kind of are. Like, you are more or less programmed to uncritically believe everything your parents tell you mm-hmm. through childhood. That said, I'm going to take the pro-Santa stance for this. Uh, <laughs> well, does not reflect my actual position. I actually uh, have argued that that is one of the reasons that uh, maybe teaching Santa belief to kids is a good thing. Because it'll... Okay, this this is not a argument I stand by anymore. But at one time, I thought uh, it, it's kind of like giving kids a little crash course in rationality. They, you're you're told all these lies that do not match the real world at all, and slowly they start to come apart, and you start questioning your reality and applying these skills. And I thought it was like a good a good primer for teaching kids how to be critical thinkers. Yeah. It's like a, a truth obstacle course. Yeah. So it's a it's a crash course in cynicism and distrusting your your parents and authority. Is <laughs> exactly. that what you're getting at? Which are important lessons <laughs> to learn in life. <laughs> yes. It, 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 looking back on the actual real world effects, it doesn't seem like that actually is what happens with people. They find out about Santa and they're like, well, I still love Jesus though. And it never applies to anything else in life. So that was one of my arguments I was going to give in favor of teaching kids or in telling kids about Santa was that... He's like Jesus Light. Exactly. And so then at the end of it, you could, you know, maybe not at age six or whatever, but down the road when the kid's a little older, hey, remember all the stuff about Santa Claus? Well, Jesus now, mm-hmm. right? That was one of my, my joke arguments in favor of telling kids about Santa Claus. It, it does kind of feel like it should be some sort of inoculant though, right? Like cowpox would protect you against smallpox. It, it's kind of like... 
the cowpox of religion. Why doesn't it work? It's Chud. Humans suck. Why aren't they so compartmentalized? That's actually a good question. Maybe because the threat of hellfire is more scary than getting coal for Christmas? Well, not to a kid, really. No. <laughs> I think it's probably much more about fitting in with the rest of society. Well, that that's... You're, you're taking away all my stuff. I was going to no, say that about... No, no, you're fine. I Like I said, I was going to argue against what I actually believe in favor, so, so we weren't all agreeing that teaching kids about Santa is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that, A, it's, it's religion light, basically, and mm-hmm. there might be some transferable skills to a introspective young teenager or something about, like, hey, you remember how you went through all that stuff accepting that Dana wasn't real? Well, that kind of works exactly in this situation, too, right? Adults lie to children all the time, and I think that kids are pretty used to it, so it doesn't... Maybe that's why it doesn't come as so much of a shock. I don't know. Um, it didn't come as much of a shock to me. Okay. You were already used to your parents lying to you? I don't know about my parents, but adults certainly do all the time, and I didn't even... I'm not sure that I even realized it. It's so hard to remember how you felt as a kid about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, I must have been in first grade when when I figured out the Santa didn't exist. My mom wanted me to circle some things that I wanted in a cheap gift, like, catalog. And then I did, and they those things showed up from Santa. <laughs> and you began to wonder? Well, and then I... That was the day I was like, oh... Mom's buying me these things and saying that they're from Santa Claus. Well, that's normal. You go into class and your teachers are dressed up like witches and they have special witch names because it's Halloween and they tell you that they're they're Hilda and, um, you know, whoever. That never happened in my school. That happened in your school? It was so much fun. Huh. I don't remember my childhood that well. Okay. <laughs> I, I, that probably happened at some point. So, but, but that kind of stuff, the pretend, like, let's play pretend. This tree is going to tell you, ask this ask this tree questions and it'll tell you about how photosynthesis works or, you know, that's what it is to be a child is to play pretend. Um, the Santa Claus myth, I think is, it's certainly more entrenched than a lot of those. So it sounds like you're saying it's not really that bad of a thing. I'm kids saying, are pretend all the time anyway. I'm saying, yeah, kids play pretend all the time. Adults play pretend with kids all the time. So, um, I don't think it's, you well again. I can't speak for anyone but myself, but it wasn't terribly surprising that it was another. It was another pretend thing. I think the difference, though, between like your teacher pretending to be a witch or your parents telling you this tree is going to tell you about photosynthesis, is that you knew it was pretend. Yeah, a you knew it was pretend. B, there was no like resistance to you questioning. Like, wait, you're still miss. Higgins, right? Not not Hilga the witch, right? So like, it. But like, if you challenge Santa that way, you get kind of pushed back where you wouldn't if you were, you know, saying this tree's not really talking, is it, Mom? Oh um, no, you might so, like your teacher might say, "I really am. I'm her twin sister. That's why we look exactly the same." But I'm a witch, and we're going to we're going to talk about all the plants in the solar system, and then we're going to pluck them out of the sky and put them in this soup. I stole her body outright using dark magic. <laughs> yeah. uh, so. Uh, you should hear her screaming within my mind. <laughs> yeah, kids kids are used to that. And, um, you know, as an adult who's worked with children and uh, work, worked at museums, I hear parents telling little lies to their kids all the time. Little lies, big lies, casually. Lies is the point. Something to make your life a little easier. Yeah. If they don't know the answer, they'll just come up with something. Huh. You know. So it's, it's a reality. Scary. 
it's a reality that children live in and a lot of, and some of those things slip through. Um, I know sometimes I would talk with Tim and he'd say, oh, for the longest time I believed this about AIDS Mm -hmm. because um, I asked my mom, how do people get AIDS? And she said, by being naughty. And he thought, (laughs) and he thought for the longest time that if he didn't clean his room, he could get a deadly disease. That sounds uh, a few levels worse than Santa. Yeah. Did I ever tell you about... But it was so so casual. Yeah, that's that's She didn't want to get into it. Yeah. She didn't want to get into it, so she gave him a non-answer. And it impacted his life in ways that she couldn't have predicted. Right. She was probably using naughty as a euphemism for unsafe sex with people you don't know. Yeah. And he thought it meant not cleaning his room. Or using needles or... Right. Yeah. Yeah. The um, did I ever tell you about my missing ribs? Not my actual missing rib, but the the the, the story. Yes, of okay. course. Right. You probably believed for a long time that uh, men had one less rib than women. Yes, because you know because of the Adam story, where God takes the the rib and makes Eve out of it. I don't think you told me this story. I didn't. I for the longest time, I think I must have been into my uh, teens. I thought this, <laughs> and the stupid thing is, I have twenty four seven access to a male rib cage. I could have checked. I mean, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to count your ribs, but I could have at least tried, and it never even occurred to me. I was just like, yeah, that's why men got one less rib. Because I'm an idiot. I can think of two examples that are related and probably super tangential. One, Aristotle had lots of claims to being a very intelligent guy, and he, he did a lot in natural philosophy. But he was also super lazy about stuff. So, like, he started, like, taxonomy and, you know, organizing animals and different phyla and stuff. But his, he had, like, a couple, a few claims that were kind of out there, like, men have more teeth than women. Hmm. And it's like, you could just ask Mrs. Aristotle to open her mouth <laughs> yeah. and count her teeth, and then you could count yours right. and disprove that. But you just said that without even looking at anything. Maybe uh, Mrs. Aristotle had a missing tooth or something. Yeah. Maybe. Bad cavity. Maybe, maybe he looked at literally one, two people, <laughs> one male, one female, and counted their teeth and said... Well, that's, that's how nobody's, nobody's pretty... developed the scientific method yet. So. <laughs> yeah. I thought they had the logic to say that one doesn't equal all, though, back then. Maybe they... Not really. Back then, they didn't even have to come up with any evidence at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, They're then... like platonic ideals is how the universe works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to Santa. Yes. The... Is there... Is... Go. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask, is there, a, like, a social utility in, like, kids fitting in with uh, the Santa belief? I mean, I was yelled at for telling another kid that there was no Santa by her mother. Oh. She said, uh, well, Santa visits our house. Guess he doesn't come to yours. What a bitch. Damn. She's pretty mean. She has a mean mommy. Santa doesn't come to Jew houses, I guess. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, that's what she said. I don't even know if she knew I was Jewish, but. Should have hate crimed it. (laughs) It's it's more, I was. The implication was that I was a naughty child where. I wasn't going to get gifts from Santa. Oh, I... what, what did she think was going to happen? Her kids eventually find out. Yeah. All kids eventually find out. It's true. I I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was going to be the other argument in favor of telling kids about Santa, which I think the standard recipe or like the standard uh, consideration with rationalist parents who are like, well, do I engage in this or not? And one of the, one of the standard kind of comebacks is like, well, you don't want if you're going to do it at all, you don't want your kid to a be the first person to know that Santa isn't real, or B, be the last person to know that Santa isn't real. Why wouldn't you want him to be the first? Because then they get shit like Katrina got. So, uh-huh. like, then you run around, you know, ruining your friend's holidays that year, <laughs> and, you know, you get stuff, you get flack from their parents, 
and you know your parents get flocked from their parents, etc. So there's some social utility to not ruining everyone's raining on everyone's parade there, right? I do know why that mean mama didn't want her daughter to know that there was no Santa. Was that? It's because she used it as a threat, like a lot of parents. Uh, you know, if you don't behave, Santa Santa's all seeing, all knowing, and he will know that you don't get presents yeah. um, because you're going to go on the naughty list. I imagine <laughs> that that had something to do with developing the Santa myth. Mm. I mean, and then the even more intense Krampus myth. Right, and then the even more intense and more, more intense Jesus myth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. we it's, were... not, it's not just Christmas; it's not just torture. It's torture forever, and no Christmases again. Yeah. When we were in Tennessee recently, a couple little girls ran up to us and just said, "Hey, hi! There are elves in our house now. Today, okay. today, elves showed up in our house." And I said, "Oh, where where are they?" And then she said, "Well, one's in the bathroom." And I was thinking, so that, do, you, do you, have you heard of the elf on the shelf? Yeah, yeah. They, he, what is it? Like he watches you or something? Yeah, they watch you for Santa. Okay. To make the whole threat a little bit more present. It's, it's a way of introducing, <laughs> um, uh, the panopticon to children early. You will live in a surveillance <laughs> society. Some big brother will always be watching you. Here is how we, we start you on it with the elf on the shelf. And I was just thinking, they put it in the bathroom for them, those poor little girls. I never Santa's had... watching you while you poop and shower. Yeah, he's probably taking pictures. Uh, <laughs> Santa has to make sure it's a good poop, That's not right. a naughty poop. Uh, so I had never actually heard of the elf on the shelf, and I didn't know it was a thing that actually exists in real life. I heard about it on a television show called The League, uh-huh. and the daughter names it Kegel, and uh, <laughs> it was this Christmas episode, but it was not a family-friendly show. And I didn't know that this was something that people actually did. That's really funny. Oh, yeah. Uh, my um, my sister-in-law got one, and she was just saying, that thing was so creepy. We couldn't even... The adults in the house couldn't handle it. Mm-hmm. And they ended up getting rid of it, buying into that mythology wholeheartedly there. Creepy elf. But I think that if it's done right, if you're not threatening your kids, you know, and you're not doing it... You know, like, you, you mentioned a lot of the nefarious ways to, to employ the Santa stuff. And I think that, yeah, those should be definitely uh, disincentivized. I think there's yeah. the, the kind of harmless way. Like, my, my parents, I don't think, I don't, like I said, I don't remember my childhood that well, but I don't think that they were ever, like, threatening Christmas or doing any, you know, things that made me super uncomfortable with this whole thing. Yeah. I think it was just one of those things that... I think it would depend a lot on, like, how you were raised. If you were raised with a, a awesome, fun Santa and happy family, you'd probably want to pass it on to your kids. I don't think it really affects the kids that much. Yeah. You know... That elf on a shelf thing reminds me, um, I read a blog post about someone pre, pre 9-11, comparing pre 9-11 to post 9-11, and she was talking about what a pain in the ass it was to get her, I think, one-year-old or so in a stroller. Bastard was screaming, would not want to go, it was like a half-hour ordeal to get this guy, the kid in the stroller, buckled up, and they go, and they're going to the, uh, the big arch in St. Louis, is it? Okay. And they get there, and there's now a new security thing that there had never been before. And she was like, oh, crap. Now i got to take the kid out, go through security, and go through this whole thing all over again. And it had been like five minutes since they got in the stroller. But the kid is now used to security theater. He gets out, they go through the thing, he gets back in. Like it didn't even happen. And she was like, this is fucking scary, and I don't like this. <laughs> that my kid just accepts this as part of his world. <laughs> And yet, he just got easily back into the stroller, so that's nice. Yeah. I'm sure my parents, my parents probably 
used um, Santa Claus to threaten me at some point as a child. And I don't think it's unusual for parents to want to find, um, to want to do an appeal to authority. My friend, you know, even when I'm just over visiting, she'll try to tell her kid, um, she'll, she'll ask me, is it okay to hit dogs, Katrina? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you will answer? I'll answer, no, it's not okay to hit dogs. And she'll say, See, sweetie, it's not okay to hit dogs. But Katrina you, said so. Are you an authority on dogs, or is it just more peer pressure? I, I well, as an adult that he doesn't know well, mm. I guess she's she's trying to. I mean, I think I am an authority. <laughs> and the appeal to authority is just but, so easy, too. So yeah, you so people deal appeal with your... to a made-up authority Santa, or a made-up authority, I don't know, God, or... Yeah. I thought it was going to, I took a different interpretation of your friends doing that. You know the context better than I do, but I was thinking, oh, she's referring to Katrina as this paragon of virtue and Katrina wouldn't do it. Now, would you not do something that Katrina would do? Come on. (laughs) I think it wouldn't even matter who I was if I just showed up and I wasn't her or, um, or the kid's father. Then you can be like, look, all the adults are against this. You do this, the adults are going to team up on you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. Don't even try it. It's not just mommy being mean, it's... Really, this the norm out there. Yeah. <laughs> you anyway. see, other people think that hitting dogs is not good. Also, yeah, it's for kids because they're the worst, right? The I don't know. I, I think it probably also depends a lot just on the actual adult. Like I said, I'm not sure it affects kids all that much. But if I were to ever be a parent, I would not feel um, okay sharing the Santa thing just because I would know. I was lying to my kid's face. Mm-hmm. I, like, just through my teeth, and I I would feel like a terrible person doing that. I'd like to think that I won't, if I ever have a kid, that I won't lie to them. But I'm sure I'd lie to my kids sometimes, but it wouldn't be such a pre-planned, you know, conspiracy of a thing. <laughs> See, I thought of doing this kind of the way that I would teach them about, like, religions and stuff, too. Mm-hmm. And say, look, this is something that people believe. This is This is a belief that's out there. You don't, you don't tell them it's true. Mm-hmm. You say this is, this, you know, your friends at school are talking about Santa. Now I'm going to tell you what that's all about. Right. Now they like, you know, they, some parents pretend or they like to pretend that he's real. Don't, don't spoil the fun for him. But, you know, you get them fully in a loop and then, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it also is an example to children. So mm. based on the Santa Claus tooth fairy Easter bunny type myth, I took that and thought it was okay to lie to my little brother. About other things? About fairies and, and other stuff that wasn't real. And so um, we, we did diaper fairy. What was the diaper fairy? The diaper fairy was to help him get potty trained. So for days that he didn't have an accident, he could put a diaper, a clean diaper that he, of course, he didn't have to use because he was wearing his big boy underpants underneath his pillow and he would get the diaper fairy would come and get him a treat a little gift or something that's kind of awesome it is <laughs> no. <laughs> like, no? I, I get the, like that it has the lying component which isn't good but so like if it were me i would just be like hey i'll give you whatever a childhood equivalent of a dollar is whatever you value as much as i like a dollar i'll give you that you know you want like a yeah but that's not as kiss. magical as a fairy coming and like being like oh what a good boy yeah, yeah but, like, but the thing diaper. is it was me doing it so i would like find feathers that i liked and stick him under his pillow, or a rock, or you know, or spiders, or my, was a kid. my parents just let me do that. So, did it help him? Um, I think so. so. But but the question is, at what cost? 
Uh, okay, at what cost? At what cost? So, so my parents were modeling for me that it was okay to tell younger kids fantastical, you know, lies, mm-hmm. fantastical, imaginary creatures come and and uh, reward you for not having to use a diaper. From a consequentialist point of view, though, did he come? Did he get uh, diaper trained faster? Well, or I can't. Trained? I can't possibly compare okay. um, to how fast he would have been potty trained without the diaper fairy. Was he psychologically scarred by the diaper fairy? I don't think so. We'll have to ask him. Okay. I, I think, I think. to me that sounds just he like a lot of fun. figured out it was me because I was a clumsy kid. <laughs> and I was just sticking random stuff that I found and thought was kind of cool under there. Did you ever stick any bugs under there? No, I never stuck any bugs under there. I was actually frightened of bugs when I was a kid. Oh. What? I know. I imagine you playing with bugs. Yeah, me too. Oh, I did until their legs fell off for the first time, and then, <laughs> and then it was no more bugs. I was terrified of uh, of their legs falling off because you thought they were in pain, or just because it was icky. It was icky. Mm-hmm. It was icky. The body parts are just like on you now. It was icky. Death is icky. You know. Oh, did you have a concept of death that young? Yeah. Okay. The funny thing is, um, I. Gosh, I'm just rambling on. Yeah. But I came I came to the concept of, of really understanding and internalizing death um, because I had just watched a documentary about pearl oysters. Okay. And um, in the documentary, they, they got the oysters, they opened them up, and then they were actually dissecting the oyster. And they're like, here's its heart, here's this, here's that. And then um, I kind of connected that, you know, the oyster... To, to humans and yeah. what would happen if somebody cut open a human and took out their heart and um, yeah hmm. so then I was like oh no what happens when you die it's all oysters fault I had the horrible realization when a family member died when I was really little Ooh. Uh, my great grandfather on my mom's side mm-hmm. and I was just like oh shit like we're never gonna talk to him again like oh this is what death is oh my god and, like it was there was some panic involved at like age seven did you uh, get to, and I'm going to die? Oh, yeah, that, that's that's where the panic came from. Yeah, I already had family members who had died at that point. But just something visceral about uh, seeing it. You didn't yeah. realize that you would die, too, until the oyster. I realized it, but I didn't... There's there's knowing something, mm-hmm. and then there's internalizing it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, Fun! There, there's, there's, <laughs> there's one way to tie this into signaling, which is, did... I guess maybe you, you, didn't, you weren't raised with the Santa myth. No. And I can't remember what I did, but it strikes, it strikes me as plausible that I might have continued to play along after having solved it for the sake of everyone else playing the game. Sure, my little brother did, um, but it was because he thought he wouldn't get gifts. Right. <laughs> okay, so not, not a great example then. I was hoping that we could say, well, we signaled this belief, you know, to carry on this social trend, which would have been a very is loose this, segue into signaling. Is theory. it still signaling if you pretend? No, it doesn't. It has so, nothing to do with signaling. So your brother was pretending to believe in Santa, and your parents were pretending to believe in Santa. Like, they were trying to each other. How yes. long did this go on? Oh, like, a really long time. He still like, believes. At some, point, <laughs> at some point, I went to my parents, and I said, this is getting ridiculous. He is he is getting really old for this. He's, He's shaving. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was 14 years old. He's three years younger than me. And um, Did so you know I, that he was faking at that point? No, I didn't. Okay. I said, well, I don't know if he is or isn't. And um, I'm going to go talk to him. And they said, okay. Because he was just way too old. 
So I did, and he said I knew it all along. Okay. It's kind of hard to tell if somebody's faking without, like, spoiling it for them. Did he, at some point, realize that he would still get gifts? Or he <laughs> yeah, wait- we talked oh. about it. No, but uh, before before that, before he, when he was 11 and you were 14. Okay. No. Because I, I almost figured, like, maybe at 9 he figured out he'd still get gifts, but at this point it was just too embarrassing to is... suddenly be like, Hey, guys! No, he told me, well... He was also, there were some leading questions involved, like my parents saying, oh, you you already knew? Um, why did you keep pretending? Is it because this? And he said, yes. Let's do move on from death and Santa and religion <laughs> and family members to uh, the topic of signaling. Now, from my perspective, it's an economic topic, a topic in economics um, related to conveying accurate information mostly accurate, believable information between businesses or um, between a potential employee and employer about what would otherwise be kind of private or complex information, mm-hmm. right? When you say believable or uh, accurate, which did you mean? Because those can be two very different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean accurate. So, so conveying some information that would be, would be private or otherwise difficult to, to come by. I think maybe that's what the intention is, but I think a lot of signaling is uh, not necessarily trying to convey accurate information anymore. Like, I want you to think this thing about me, even if it's not necessarily true. Yeah, so there's there's honest signaling, and then there's, I suppose, dishonest signaling. I think that's, okay, yeah. so, for people, um, so people, for people who are economists or have some background on this, of course, you can always chime in by writing you know, in our subreddit or on our website. I think that, at least in the less wrong community, we've taken signaling pretty far, um, pretty far from maybe that original economic definition. Mm-hmm. I, I guess... I've heard that it is a not a useful signal if it is easy to fake. For example, um, the one that's often talked about is um, a college education, a degree. Various degrees are signaling something. They might not be signaling mastery of a topic, but they might be signaling... Um, and, and what it signals changes over time, mm-hmm. depending. But it might be signaling stick-to-itiveness, right. right? Conscientiousness. You can put up with this bullshit for four years. You can put up with it and make it through. Or six or eight, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. The the classic example I've always heard is the peacock's tail. Uh, The the plumage on the male peacocks is, well, I guess they're peacocks, so they're male. Otherwise, they'd be peahens. But anyways, uh, everyone's familiar... Peafowl. Peafowl, yes. The male Male peafowl. Peafowl. The plumage is famous for being extremely... Big and and bright and uh, really a huge liability evolutionarily because it makes it harder to fly, makes it harder to um, escape predators, and it takes a huge amount of biological resources to grow that tail. But the point of the peacock's tail is kind of a brag. It says, "I have uh, resources to spare." Yes, I have. So I am so good at being a peacock that I can just waste all this energy making this giant tail, and it doesn't even hurt my fitness. I'm still able to to do what I need to do and get away from the predators. And then all the ladies are like, "Oh my, <laughs> let's let's get with that guy." Uh, and the fact that it is uh, very costly, it, it does make flying harder, and it is impossible to fake the, the tail, you actually have to have the resources to grow it out, makes it a good signal. Yeah, um, there are, of course, many, many animals that have all sorts of different kinds of signal. That's just the most famous one. For health. 
yeah. for fitness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they like, are pretty reliable signals. It's the reason we like big butts and we cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of of which, I was going to just throw out the idea that I don't think peacock tails would be at, would have gotten as big as they are if they were delicious to predators. Right? <laughs> right. So, like the fact that like the predator basically has to work around this giant tail to eat the the small bird <laughs> compared to like the size of the tail. If it was also edible and delicious, I think that there's no way that it would have gotten that big and that cumbersome. Okay. There's also aphids with a lot of a big wax tail um, that comes out of their rear ends. And it has several different functions. One is if the predator bites it, they can get away. And the predator only has a mouthful of sugary wax. Hmm. And the other is it diverts their honeydew away from them. Their honeydew? Their waste. Their white what? So when they go to the bathroom. Oh! Why'd you call it honeydew? Because that's what it is. That they poop honey? So aphids are phloem feeders, right? I don't know what phloem is. Phloem is the conductive tissue, conductive plant tissue that moves sugars okay. through the plant. Photosynthesis, right? Make glucose. Mm-hmm. And um, then that goes through the phloem to the rest of the plant or, and for storage in the roots. Okay. Right? So aphids hook, them, hook themselves up to that and they suck it. Point is they poop honey. Yeah. And ants eat it, for example. So that's why they farm aphids uh-huh. to, to eat their excrement which is a highly nutritious sugary drink. But it's also a liability for, for aphids and plant hoppers and other phloem feeders because it is sweet and sugary and it's right there next to them, right? So it kind of marks them as a, a target, like here's a high-protein snack. So a lot of them have these these waxy, what looks like tails, that make make that kind of go further away from their bodies, stream further away from their bodies. Okay. Anyway, I was just saying that what Stephen's saying about the peacock tail, your theory about it not necessarily being easy to come through or being distracting to predators that are trying to get a bite. She's saying you're full of crap. No, I said it's not far-fetched. Oh, okay. And it's an absolutely reasonable hypothesis. Yay! (laughs) Uh, I think <laughs> I I forgot where we were at, but that was that's interesting. Uh, I, I, mean, I was going to say that uh, when you brought up the the signaling in the less wrong context, I think one of the reasons it's popular in the community is because uh, before less wrong was less wrong, it was a co-blog on overcoming bias with Robin Hansen, and Robin Hansen is rather famous for saying that a lot of behaviors which we think are very noble and great human things. Uh, are actually just signaling. It's it's a way of saying, look, I'm great, you should come mate with me or be my ally, and uh, we don't actually mean it at all. I would I would challenge that that's not an accurate representation of Hansen's position. No. Not that we don't mean it, not that... Like, so you can mean it and have it be a signal, right? Yes. Yes, so, like, that's true. I had a friend on Facebook this week say, yes, my, my employer matches my charity donations of $3,000 a year. Mm-hmm. There's no point in him sharing that news unless he wants everyone to know that he's planning to donate to charity. Yeah. Yes, but, so he's, I mean, he's, that friend has announced on several occasions that he's giving to charity. Right. And, but that's uh, good, you should. Absolutely. Yes, and I mean, I worked for a company, and the whole point was to get people to say that they're giving to charity, because doing that pressures other people to also give to charity. Right, so I think that they're, it's not necessarily just for the esteem or the prestige or the, the knowledge of, 
to, to convey that signal, right? Uh, uh, Robin Hanson would say it is entirely to convey that signal. Entirely? Almost entirely, yes. He would say that charity is not about helping people. It is about showing off how much wealth you have to burn. That the I... whole X is not about X. It's actually about Y. It comes from him saying that. That's that's why he was the model for Voldemort. Yeah, but I... Uh... I mean, probably a 90-minute podcast with him today, and I don't yeah. think that's what he came across saying, but everything else you're saying about that does sound like what he said. Well, uh, that's that's to... that's what I get from his blog, anyway. When when you meet him in real life, he's the nicest person, so maybe <laughs> well, he doesn't so, actually believe that in real so, life. Uh, so here's the thing. Um, even if you're, even if it's signaling, it doesn't mean that it's not accurate, right? So if you're signaling that you are altruistic, mm-hmm. right? Um, you want to give to others. You want to better your community. You're saying, what What does it matter if it's... But, like, as long as the community is being bettered... The then... com- yeah, if the community is being bettered and you're getting um, some benefit from that mm-hmm. in terms of how others see you mm-hmm. and maybe your higher ability or your suitability for a friend, mm-hmm. that like that, that's okay. Yeah. And you also get to you also get to make your community or the world a better place. So, so you get all sorts of different rewards from that. It's kind of like how uh, how greed or self-interest helps to make the world run by making markets very uh, efficient resource allocation methods. This was a puzzle. So people generally think greed's a bad thing, but it has all these wonderful benefits. To an extent, for sure. Uh, you can, just like with everything, you can kind of screw it up. But there, right. this ties really nice, neatly into a puzzle I was going to throw out later, but since we're already kind of right on it. So, say our friend really had no intentions of ever giving to charity, mm-hmm. but he just wants the social esteem of being a charity giver, so he talks about it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, it's, an easy to, it's an easy to fake signal. And I know you're listening, so I don't believe that you're doing this, <laughs> but uh, this, 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 yeah, would be an easy signal to fake. No one's going to ask him for his receipts. Yeah. So It's like the people who check in at Standing Rock to confuse the police, but don't actually give $5 to help. I don't know what that is, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> oh, Standing Rock is where there's the big protests for the oil pipeline right now. Ah, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so they'll check in over there, but they don't donate? Just yeah, there was this whole thing for about... Yeah, slacktivism. For about 24 hours, there was this thing where uh, someone said, hey, if we all check in at the location on Facebook, it confuses the police who are using uh, Facebook to track which people are actually there protesting. Which wasn't actually holding any water. Right. It, it was entirely crap, which is why it petered out after 24 hours. But because the pipeline isn't finished yet. <laughs> but during that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's an oil pipeline. I was just... During a few water hours of time, I <laughs> yeah. saw a few people checking in, and I'm like... You could do so much more just by giving $5. Money is the unit of caring. If you actually care about something, donate five freaking bucks to the cause. Or, if you really care about it, go in person. Oh, the- Ain't nothing like being there physically. Some signaling is good, but yeah, it's a lot less than putting your money there for it. Last last digression, I promise. Maybe we don't have to dive into this, but this is a fun signaling problem. Mm-hmm. Um, Cards Against Humanity does Black Friday sales. Oh, God. Where they, where they, where they <laughs> up their price, or they'll do something weird like that, and then they'll donate the, ex- the extra to charity or something. And then typically, you know, like they'll, hey, so we make our, they'll, they'll put like a, a leaflet out to their workers or in boxes that they sell these products. And say, hey, so our cards are made in China. We gave, you know, this giant chunk of whatever was made for this month and gave everyone a two-week vacation who makes our cards. So anyway, so they'll do that. Anyway, so this year for Black Friday, you could donate money and they would dig a hole. Yes. The holiday hole, they called it. Yes. For every $5 that was donated, this there's this big, uh, what do you call the big earth movers with the shovel on the end? Big digging machines. Things, yeah. You okay. know what I'm talking about. All right. Uh, for every $5 donated, it would run for two seconds. Backhoes? Yeah, maybe, yeah. I think backhoe is the right term. 
And uh, they, I believe, stopped after about 95000 because I tried to go and donate a few bucks just to make it run a few more seconds. That's what everybody oh, did. Right. <laughs> $95,000 literally thrown into a money pit. Right. So that's, uh, so that's a PR stunt mm-hmm. on their part. Right. That is not signaling. I know, but it was just... So, well, so one, of the, one of the... Why on is their it free, not signaling? On their what free, what yeah. is it signaling? It's signaling that you're so cool that you're going to participate in this PR stunt. So I, I, I mentioned how they are generally awesome with charities at the beginning because they're not totally dicks about this all the time. But on their frequently asked questions page about this, they're like, is there a deeper meaning to this? No. <laughs> why, why, why are you digging a hole? Why aren't you giving this to charity? Why aren't you giving, to, giving it to charity? It's your money. <laughs> <laughs> so the, on the fact that the question, where is the hole? The answer was in America and our hearts. <laughs> what if you dig so deep that you hit magma? Well, then at least we'd feel something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the holiday hole was, was a lot of fun, actually. I was thinking um, a little bit about, about status signaling. Right? Mm-hmm. So if, I, if I'm talking to somebody online and they, for example, don't use complete sentences mm-hmm. or punctuation or they use LOL a lot or just the wrong word for the situation... It kind of doesn't matter who they are. That tends to lower my opinion of them and their abilities to actually do things in the world. Yeah, I... Which is not fair because some of the most intelligent um, and capable people write in a messy shorthand. B-C-R-U are words, not letters. (laughs) Weird outline. But no, I I totally agree with you. But I, I find that affecting my own behavior because I like smileys. I use them a lot because you don't get tone in 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 uh, text, and I tend to joke around a lot and you know be happy and things. Uh, at least when I'm talking with people, because I like interacting with humans. Because I don't know, I'm a weirdo. Anyways, uh, I lots of times before I send a text, I will go through and I'll be like, I'm gonna delete that smiley, and I'm gonna delete that smiley because I don't want to look stupid. Right. Exactly. I mean, I'll use smileys when I'm talking with my friends, but in work emails, I am so tempted. Oh, I, I will I will use them in work emails. You will use them I in work like emails. I like to signal that I am a more relaxed sort of guy. You can be cash around me. You can so do I totally that. use smileys Maybe in my work emails. Maybe you that because you're a man. Huh. And um, I want to look capable. Huh. I want to look capable yeah. and professional. Right. And uh, so I do not use smileys in my work emails as much as I would like and to. And you could totally get that. Oh, the ditzy girl using the smileys. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, that sucks. I just wanted to chime in, and I'm skimming back through my texts for the day, and over half of them compare, uh, contain emojis or, or text smileys. Whatever, guys. Emojis are so in. Yes. In casual conversation. LOLs are out. I've never used LOL. <laughs> Because I've never laughed out like that. That would be lying, right? I've, I've never like You've never laughed out loud. I've, if at a text, I'll, I'll like hmm, like or I'll chuckle or something, but I I've never I don't think laughed out loud. And if I did, well, you could pretend it means lots of love or little old lady. Yeah, but then like if that's if what weird it stands though. for, then yeah. uh, I don't know. Anyway. I, I heard someone who thought uh, their their mom actually thought it meant lots of love. And uh, someone someone posted oh, on Facebook God. Yeah, see where this is going. that their aunt died, <laughs> and she replied, LOL, <laughs> for lots of love. LOL, LOL, lots of love, little old lady. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I mean, uh, before before LOL as laugh out loud or lots of love existed, um, that's what it meant in our family, was little old lady. That's adorable. Hmm. I'll, I'll, you know, if something makes me smile, like, a bunch, like, hmm. I'll, I'll sometimes toss an LOL down. But Excellent. if I actually laugh out loud, which does happen sometimes, I will say I literally lolled. 
I'll just put in that, that laughing smiley face because I feel like that actually gets it through better than, than I do. Anyway, language. Yeah. Like the whole thing is symbolic. Right. Therefore. Language is signaling. We only say things to make other people believe stuff about us. So I don't think we've done Most a good... Most of e- which is lies. the world. We've given a good example or good definition of like outside of business context signaling. Mm. And I liked the one that Scott Alexander gave on Less Wrong a few years ago which was a method of conveying information among not necessarily trustworthy parties by performing an action which is more likely or less costly if the information is true than if it is not true. Which is to say, doing things if it doesn't cost too much to do and it makes it seem like what you're saying is or doing is true, mm-hmm. right? So by that measure, uh, I do like the, the college education example. And I, it depends on your major a lot too. If you're getting like a technical major, it's likely that you'll probably learn something that you'll actually use. If you're, well, then again, too, even, so, like, I talked to people who went through programming boot camps and through computer science degrees, and people who went through computer science degrees, they're like, yeah, we didn't start writing code till like, you know, year three. And I'm like, that seems like a long time before you hit the keyboard. Yeah. Like, how are you knowing what you're doing if you're not, if you're taking that long to actually get to it? So I think, I'm assuming, having not majored in computer science, that there's probably just as much, like, bullshit memorization in that major as there is in a lot of other majors. But the point is... The point of college isn't to say, look, I've got this this degree, I therefore know what I'm doing. It's to say, I got this degree, therefore I, I show that I can commit and, you know, mm-hmm. pass tests and memorize trivia. So, well, maybe maybe not the last ones are more subtly implied. But what you, what you are saying is that I am serious about this. Right. So it's not the express that the university isn't selling you a $100,000 education by saying, this will tell your employer that you're serious about this job. They're, they're saying this will teach you a lot about it, which isn't really the case. Is um, Robin Hanson the person who pointed out that, or maybe Yukowski that pointed out that you can just ask to sit in on courses and get a Harvard education without paying for it? You can also do it online for free for a lot of their stuff, too. But no one would take that seriously. Right. So, like, if, if, if on your resume you said, sat in on 60 credit hours worth of, of lectures, they're going to be like, you didn't get a degree, you didn't get a piece of paper saying you did that, then we don't care. Mm-hmm. I assume. The, the point is, is or the, maybe the example falls apart in those cases, because this is kind of new stuff too, right? At least with the online, with the free online versions. It doesn't fall apart, that illustrates it. Because people, yeah, if you don't have a certification from it, a certification from a trustworthy source that you did those things, then... Yeah, and it also depends on the employer too. Like apparently, I've, I've heard, allegedly, that Google apparently hires based on your credentials and your skill rather than like your education level. They may well but, try to. Yeah. Oh, exactly. But that's hard, that's hard to appraise. You have to, like, actually ask them rather than come up with stupid, boring interview questions. Like, what's your greatest weakness? So I currently, uh, and I'm unemployed. I got laid off recently, as obviously the people in this room know, but our listeners do not yet know. And I've been working in accounting for, God, like 15 years now. My last job, uh, 10 years straight. And I don't actually have a degree in accounting. And so that, I have been hearing, may present a problem when I go out looking for a job again because... Not necessarily because I'm not qualified, but for uh, the purposes of signaling. Because the human resource person doesn't know me from Jack. And sure, I've got a lot of experience in accounting. I can show them that I can do the accounting. They hire me. Then something happens. There's a personality conflict or whatever. And they got to kick me out of the company. And the boss goes to the HR person and they're like, why'd you hire this asshole? And they're like, if with someone else, they could be like, look, he has an accounting degree, he has the CPA, he had the qualifications, so it's kind of a covering their own ass thing. If, if I don't have that stuff, 
they, their own job is at is a bit of a bigger risk to hire me because then they might get shit from their boss. Sure, I guess you just have to make sure that you know people high up in the company. Right, and and Nepotism. I that's well, yeah. I, I wish I knew more people. I guess, but no, that's that's another reason why a lot of people uh, like to hire people with a lot of credentials to make themselves look good. Like, look, we have this PhD and Nobel Prize winner working for us. We are obviously very serious people. Sure. There was an organization in D.C. that I knew somebody who worked for. They only hired people with bachelor's degrees. And the job was calling different companies and asking if so-and-so was still in this position. Oh. So... You don't need a bachelor's degree for that. No, you certainly don't. Anybody can do that job. It's it's absolutely brainless. Mm -hmm. It's mindless. It's just all you have to do is be comfortable asking dumb questions over the phone. You can write a script that send those emails automatically and just autofill the fields. Uh, I think that they they might start with that, and then they have to go through and do double-checking. Gotcha. So just to put your mind at ease, and for anyone else out there, if this is all is at all relevant, I think a degree gets you through the door into a field that you haven't worked in before. Mm-hmm. And often in listings, you'll see, like, we want you to be able to do these things, this many years of experience... You know, education, high school diploma, or equivalent. I think that the college degree says, "Look, I yeah, I haven't worked in the field yet, but I am serious about it. I got you know, I spent hundred thousand dollars learning the basics, going to school for it. But I think that fifteen years on your resume will more than make up for the lack of a degree because no one. And I, I haven't looked for I haven't looked for accounting jobs. I look for yeah. other kinds of jobs. I'm not and no one cares about where you, where if you have a degree. Oh yeah, no. for the most part, they care about that you have five to seven or seven to ten years of experience or something. Right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm not experience worried about getting a job. Degrees. Yes, I'm not worried about getting a job. I'm just assuming that I'm going to be making a little bit less than I was before. Hmm. Because it takes a while to prove yourself if you don't have a degree yet. Just tell them that you made a lot at your previous job, <laughs> yeah, okay. and then haggle down from some ridiculous number. Yes, but that's that's the way to do it. <laughs> uh, we're a little far afield from signaling, except for oh, a degree signal, you know, yeah, competency, degrees. or they're supposed to. I, uh, God, was it, uh, it was an interview somewhere where I was listening to this lady talking about, she grew up poor, why poor people have really expensive clothes. And, cause apparently there's a thing where people say like, well, you can't be poor. You have a thousand dollar handbag. Why do you have a thousand dollar handbag if you're poor? And this lady said, for for over a year, I went into offices looking for jobs with my poor people clothes. And this is a, like an old black lady. Well, I'm not sure if she was old at this point. In the interview, she was old. It's like, I'm a black lady walking into a job that looks like crap. And they're like, mm, no. And then I went out and bought me some nicer clothes and this handbag that cost $2,000. And right away, they took me seriously. They're like, oh, this is an educated woman who obviously knows her business. And it was, it was just that handbag that made the difference. And people were all of a sudden like, this is not, this is not your, your standard person that we can discriminate against. She must know something. That's interesting. And she could have. And so, so overspending on things like clothes that you would think poor people cannot afford ends up becoming a survival strategy. It's something you have to do in order to signal that. You are serious, and you can handle things. She might have been able to convincingly fake the signal if she bought a fake good handbag. Uh, anyone who knows the handbags would know that it's a fake. Does the interviewer know about handbags? Probably or did they just not. see like that this one's not like you know old or something, right? I have but no I, it, idea. But it depends too what the position is. I guess. Yeah. So I was raising that because there's the you you can fake a signal, mm-hmm. and that's what she was doing. But she faked it by conveying a real signal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of a of another example. Well, she really but, was qualified and educated. Yeah. 
But she's trying to, like, I guess show that she was... I guess what is what is nice stuff show that you have your shit together or something? I have no idea what nice stuff is supposed to show, but apparently it shows something. I guess. Do you want to talk more about animals? <laughs> Wait, I, I thought of a good example for how to tie this into another case of, instead of being hired. Because okay. it's like being hired when you're on a date, right? Uh-huh. So you're, you're basically interviewing for a relationship or for a hookup. Mm-hmm. And so you can convey your... Your admirable qualities. People care about, you know, like your intelligence, how much money you make, how healthy you are. It's the only reason to buy an overpriced car. Yeah. Because they're they're not worth the money, but you can't just show someone your bank account. Well, Some so people like that, really like cars. And that too, I guess. Some people. But why do they like cars? Because they look really cool driving them and they get, you know, they get. So. I don't I was, know. We, I had this discussion again with my in-laws in Tennessee mm-hmm. um, because I was talking about how I couldn't understand why people liked guns and got so many different guns. Mm-hmm. And what were they signaling with all those guns? And uh, some people just really like guns and nerd out about it. And it's something that they can talk with to. They can belong to some sort of community mm-hmm. of other people who are nerdy about guns. I know a gun nerd here in Colorado. Or old cars that they refurbish, or sports cars, or whatever. They're deciding that they want to have as their hobby. Right. It is interesting, though, that, like, if you're if you're on a date, or if you're applying for a job, if you're at a job interview, like, you don't just bring, you know, your results of an IQ test, no. you know, with the stamp at the bottom saying this is official. <laughs> but, but it's weird that you... We don't, and it would be weird if you did, but it's weird that we don't, right? So, like, if if, if I'm interviewing you to hire you for a job and I want to make sure you're not an idiot, yeah. well, you know, I could try and ask you some questions, or I could, you know, look at your history, I could call people that know you, but or you can just show me. Navigating social situations is also something that is difficult and takes intelligence, and then that way they can also see whether you're someone they'd like to be around, which is important if you're working together. I'm just saying it's weird that that's not the signal, like that you can't just signal it directly. So it's illegal to do that in jobs, but um, a lot of places of work like that that company where they call people do IQ tests under some other other sort of guise as like a, a personality test. Hmm. Huh. But yes, it's it's illegal to give your potential employee an IQ test. Why would that be illegal? It, it just is. Um, I think a discrimination thing. Hmm. But when you do your GREs or SATs or ACTs to get into college or graduate school, those are IQ tests. Are they allowed to ask about your SATs? No, not at, not at jobs, but you know, when you go to grad school, that is a job pretty much. Um, although in academics, there are different requirements or there's, you know, different things that they can ask for. You take your GREs, which is like an IQ test and you put that front and center when you're writing professors. Da da da. This is what I'm interested in. These are the question, scientific questions I'm interested in. GRE score this. Biology subject test this. Like, it would be nice if you could have a like relationship score where the past people you've dated or or been in a <laughs> long-term relationship what would give you thumbs up, thumbs down, and how, other people. How do you think you would be scored? It depends on. <laughs> so that's that's why that's not popular. No, you don't okay. want that at all. I well, you know, I could be like. Eh. So yeah, I take it. You aren't allowed to ask somebody their intelligence in an interview. Or I guess you can ask them if they feel like they're a smart person or something, but you can't ask them, hey, take this IQ test and let me know your results. But hypothetically, you could show that on a date. Or you could bring it yourself to an interview. They can't ask for it, but you could show them. So like, and I get I get that we don't. Oh, so like that, that part, I, have, I have gone on dates where people told me. 
Really? Yes. Wow. But so, so that. What does that tell? And, and then signaling. What does that tell you about them? That they're an asshole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I, have, I haven't been able to get this point out that I get that we don't do that because there's. Uh, if you're weird, you're generally uh, not going to be a great partner or a, an employee, right? And since since doing that would be weird, not necessarily. It's, it's not there's a difference our, between weird and asshole. I want to finish this point. Then okay, sorry, wait. No, no, you're totally fine. Uh, but yes, so I think, I mean, there's there's a difference between weird and asshole, but weird says that you're not in this nice box that we like. There are some places outside this box that are desirable, but the outside of the box space is way bigger than just that one, you know, those small points where good weird is, right? Yeah. Um, so maybe your weird thing is that you always think about work, mm-hmm. you know, and we would love that. But that's, uh, there are more ways to be wrong, than, or more ways to be bad weird than good weird. Yeah. Maybe from the from the perspective of a hiring person. But uh, what I was trying to say is that I get why we don't do that because it would be weird and being weird is bad. But it, it it seems to make, it would almost make sense to me to have it be normal. To say, look, you're going on a date and be like, look, here's my bank statement. You know that I'm loaded. Now, now, I, don't have, now, now, I, don't, now I don't have to show you my fancy car. I don't have to buy you an expensive dinner. You can just believe that you've got proof now. I might know that you're loaded, but I don't know how I'm going to benefit from that. Right. Well, but like, so like the things that people care about, or like, here's, here's, uh, my last physical results from my doctor. You can see I'm not sick. You can see oh. I'm perfectly healthy. I mean, so again, like, that's common in my line of dating. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess in more common lines of dating, that's not common. Like on, in, in normal circumstances, if I were to bring, uh, saying, look, Hey, look, I haven't had a cold in two years. So I don't even go to the doctor except for to get the physical to check out for this day to show you that I was healthy. That would be seen like as the same thing as bringing your your IQ test results. I think that you would be surprised how often um, that kind of stuff happens, like how often somebody finds the opportunity to talk about... So we're talking about signaling, mm-hmm. right? So an IQ test is signaling, but um, people can be more indirect and say other things that make it clear that they're intelligent. And I'm not sure how it works in, in the dating world if somebody... You know, if they want to tell you that they're healthy, that makes a lot of sense. But if they... If you guys sit down, hey, I'm this person. Hi, I'm me. Okay, here's my doctor note. Here's my here's my papers for my doctor. Here's you know. So like, is that how it goes? Because that, that's that's the situation as modeling. So that, I can that say I, I have a I have a master's degree. Yeah. Um, like that hi, hi, I'm Katrina. I have a master's degree. Like or like, do you no. start it that way? No, no. It'd be it like comes so, up in conversation. You oh, you know, I went to grad school here. I went to undergrad here. How about you? You wouldn't. You say I went to a school in Boston. That is how you signal that you went to Harvard, right? Because no, no one who actually <laughs> went to Harvard says Harvard, as that is gosh. So is gosh the way you pronounce that word? Gosh, gosh. So you have to pronounce words correctly. That is another signal. Yes. No, I totally understand. There are ways to signal these things other than just going out there and doing it. I guess what I'm getting at is that, and yes, there are ways to bring them up organically in conversation that don't make you seem weird. But as long as you're trying to get to that same point anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that. I wouldn't mind a social convention that allowed you just to be forthcoming with whatever information people wanted to know about and that you wanted to share, right? I wouldn't so, mind if, I mean, I weren't so skeptical about IQ tests. Well, I mean, so IQ tests aside, like bank statements or doctor's records or whatever, you know, SATs, whatever, if there's any test used you, I guess I, I put intelligence on the list of three things that people care about when they're dating because it's one of the three things that I think people care about. What are the Maybe, other two? Uh, wealth and health. Okay. Well, health and intelligence, I think. Maybe funniness, but that kind of falls under intelligence. And not everyone wants it. Like, not everyone wants to date a comedian. But if they did, you could say, look, here's my YouTube video of me doing five minutes of stand-up and people are laughing. Yeah. Like, I mean, so I guess... Or you could just tell a joke. 
Yes. <laughs> I'm not necessarily advocating for this. I'm saying that I could see how it would make sense yeah. to just cut the bullshit and cut a two-hour conversation down to three minutes and then say, do we even want to go to dinner now? No, I think that, you know, looking at your health records, I don't feel like we're a good match. Cool. Glad we didn't waste our time. Have a great night. No, like, that's, that's, I would, I would consider that fair. I think so. But it would, it would take a lot, it would take a, a strong seating community to get that going, rather than you just being the one insane person scaring away everyone you know. I'm not even saying that I would necessarily like that. I'm saying it would make sense. As long as you're trying to signal the same information anyway, it seems weird to me that we go with this weird, circumspect way of doing it, rather mm-hmm. than just going out and doing it. So in a conversation with a former partner, I was saying, oh yeah, I, whatever, I don't, I don't want to signal. I'm just, I want to be very straightforward. Which is a people. form of signaling out of its own. Which, of course, is what he said. Oh, okay. So you're signaling that you're, you are honest to a fault and that um, you're reliable or... You know, you're just... signaling that you're too hip to signal. <laughs> Counter-signaling is also a thing. Right. So, you know... Is that where that was going? No. No, but let's talk about counter-signaling. Counter-signaling is the opposite. It's signaling, but signaling in reverse. So... Counter-signaling is when you walk up to your friend who's gay and you're like, Hey, fag, what's up? Because... Right, 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 right. Because you can't do that to someone that you don't know very well. But if you guys are best friends, you can call each other shithead or whatever, and it's like, it doesn't matter. Your friendship is so strong that you can do that kind of thing, and everyone knows that it's not a big deal. Interesting example. Okay. I I shouldn't use that example. I think, that's a, I think that's a good All example right. if... Uh, I only use that example because I, I worked with a guy who, who uh, was gay and had a friend that did that. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's that's an okay example for that kind of counter-signaling. I think there's also the one to where, like, um, I'm going to wear jeans to this funeral just to show that I'm not I'm not for dressing up for the status quo. Or I'm going to wear, you know, a flannel shirt to my, to my sister's wedding or something, mm-hmm. right? Which is less about, like, the acceptable counter-signaling within a relationship that wants it or is okay with it, mm-hmm. and more about just, like, saying, I'm so not for whatever you guys are doing, or I'm, I want to stand out by signaling my... Or pre-ripped jeans. Yeah. God, the homeless look on jeans. Those are expensive, too. I have really old jeans that look like crap, like, with the tears, because they're old, mm-hmm. and... There are people who buy those for $100 a, a pair. What? And I'm like, I would sell you mine for 10 if you would take them. <laughs> they would not take them for 10 They might take them for 100 No. <laughs> Try to sell them for 100 If you sell it for... See, that's the problem. If you sell it for 10 they're going to be like, oh, this is just an old pair of well, jeans. But if rip... you sell it for 100 You don't want to rip this going to become a worse rip and then like be a you... rip in your crotch. How do you prevent a rip from... Becoming a worse because there's well, a patch behind it. it and yeah, it's built if you that buy way. it like yeah. that, it's reinforced. Okay. If you don't, then it's not, and it's going to get way worse and quickly. I didn't realize they were reinforced. Yeah, I. I this is how up I am. I got a chance. I got a chance to examine somebody who's wearing them, and she she was showing me these because I asked her about them. She was like, "Yeah, check this out." And they're I don't know if you ever bought patches for jeans or something, but you can kind of iron in or or sew in a patch on the inside. Yeah, it's like that, but less uh, visible and. They're, yeah, they're as solid as ours, but they have holes, so your legs get cold still. I don't really see the point, but they're a thing. Maybe you can show that you have skin. I have skin. I'm raising my hands right now, you can see. I know, but on your legs. (laughs) They also have skin. You can tell how my pants aren't wet with blood. (laughs) You want to show how nice of skin you have, maybe, is what you're saying. Maybe. Maybe. 
Whatever, I don't know. See, you why would you sleep with expensive pants when you can just pull up your pant legs in front of people? <laughs> <laughs> Casually. Tell all about cutting the bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have a question. What's your question? Um, one of the ways to signal that you are an interesting and intelligent person is to have a podcast where you talk about weird things that most people don't talk about I very often. I think that having a podcast signals that you have descended into nerditude <laughs> to a that point a that you loser. don't. To the point that you don't even mind. Okay, so we are counter signaling by having a podcast. Might be. Because 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 regular signaling is just so base right or so basic right. So right. what do you think that's of like oh, I've got a podcast? Yeah, well, I no, don't, no, I don't, no, you don't, don't ever tell. say you have a podcast. You let other people find out. Oh, I haven't been doing it right then. <laughs> no, you've been doing it wrong, Katrina. <laughs> I told a couple of my friends that I that I grew up with and one classmate from the boot camp I was at. And it was only because that it did come up. It wasn't like, hi, I'm Steven. I have a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we were talking about podcasts we like. And there was it was a long story, but it happened to come up really organically. One of the guys there, this wasn't the person that I told, but he was like, I don't know why he thought this, but he's like, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that you have some podcast where you just like, some some conspiracy podcast where you're out there. And I'm like, that's dangerously close to the truth. Right? <laughs> See, that is good. Uh, you never bring that up. You never bring that sort of thing up on your own. Well, it, if wow. it comes up in conversation, it comes up. And but That's because you think it's a status signal. Well, I think it's a lower... Oh, no. I just... If you were to advise, advertise <laughs> then something, so it's like, have you seen uh, BoJack Horseman at all? Yes. Yeah, the, the song, back in the 90s, I was in a very famous TV show. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, exactly. That That's like coming up to someone and seeing like, hey, in the 90s, I was in a very famous TV show. No, then then it looks retarded. Well, what do you or, tell sorry, people? then that looks stupid. What do you tell people when they ask you what you do with your time? Uh, do you get any hobbies? Yeah, I write, I podcast, I do those sorts of things. There. They just asked, though. It's not like I bring it up. It's if they specifically ask what I do in my free time. <laughs> yeah, I shared the first episode or two of this on my Facebook and then stopped. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, definitely. And the so, first time you do something, put it up on Facebook because that's what people are on Facebook for. I haven't right. shared a single episode on my Facebook. Uh, you have a good reason, though. Like uh, when I started up Metropolitan Man again, I was like, hey, guys, this is my new thing that I'm starting. And mm-hmm. then stop. You don't put it out there every single week. Whatever. You, know? you should you should toot your horn. <laughs> By the way, listeners, I am doing my fiction podcast, The Metropolitan Man, right now. We already mentioned it on this podcast, Silly. Did we? Oh, that's right. We did. Yeah, never mind. Still, if you haven't checked it out, though, do. I'm loving it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even the one making it, but it's awesome. <laughs> The episode you guys were in just came out. Yeah, you should have us do more voices. I can't have you do more voices. Only one voice per um per person thing. Or per yeah, show. yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't. I wasn't making a weird face. You were making a sad face. Nah, no, I misinterpreted. You your misinterpreted. Face it. I was making a just hit myself in the face with my water bottle face. It was different. Also a sad it was face. different for methods of rationality because <laughs> there were there were literally hundreds of characters, many of them which had one line. And for that, I was like, okay, these two characters are separated by 20 chapters. I can have you do these two lines from two different characters, but this is short enough that I want to keep it down to one person per line. Right on. I think it's embarrassing. It's kind of like admitting that you do uh, role-playing games or something. That's... Oh, see, I'm I'm really frustrated by people who think that sort of thing is embarrassing. Because if it is something you enjoy, fucking own it. You want to meet other people who also think that's cool. Maybe it's if they're going to judge you and think that you're lame for doing role-playing games, then fuck them. You don't want to be around them that much anyway, right? Maybe it's part of my counter-signaling, mm-hmm. where I tell people things that I think are somewhat embarrassing about me. Oh, okay. So you're like, this is really embarrassing, but... 
And, and I'm like, don't. well, okay. Well, I guess that sometimes I record really casual and not very good conversations <laughs> that I have with people and put them online so that others can judge us. Yeah. So you guys could just do what I did to get around a lot of this awkwardness and just not talk to strangers, you know? <laughs> I make like a, I make like one friend a year. That, that's how I avoid a lot of this nonsense. Here's an interesting thought experiment that I thought up when, or not thought experiment, kind of like a, anyway. In, Hypothetical? Yes. Okay. Based on a real example when I was thinking about this earlier today. So what, a couple years ago you were moving and you solicited to friends to help you move. Mm-hmm. And as is in accordance with the most ancient, ancient tradition, you paid with Beer and pizza. And beer. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. Uh, why didn't you pay them an hourly wage? That is, again, considered gauche. It means that we're not actually friends. This is not a, uh emotion-based relationship. It is a um, transaction-based relationship, and you don't want to have transaction-based relationships with your friends. You use the word relationship like I hoped you would. That's, that's the whole point, right? So, like, if you'd hired movers... And they were like, alright, we're ready for you to sign the check. Well, here's all the pizza and beer you can handle. <laughs> like, that, that would, that would not be okay, right? No. So it, it's based on the kind of relationship you have with people, the ways that you can, uh, interact, mm-hmm. right? And that was, uh, alluded to when you're talking about counter signaling as well. God, I was, I was, uh, when 10, 12 years ago, uh, my dad does a lot of, uh, interior work, painting, tiling, drywall, that sort of stuff. Uh, I got a new place and I asked him to help me put down some linoleum in the bathroom because it really needed a change. And he did. And then afterwards I was like, okay, so how much do I owe you for this? And he, he like busted out in embarrassed laughter because I had just recently been reading, you know, all sorts of things about like everyone should be compensated for their time and it doesn't matter. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally grabbing this bull by the horn. You had just finished your rand divergence. Right, right. And my dad was like, OMG, noob. <laughs> GTFO. <laughs> he, he finally accepted payment for the cost of the materials, but nothing else. He was like, you are my son. Don't freaking bring money into this. That's, uh... And I was like, I have learned something. I, I, I mean, I have not forgotten that to, that to this day because I was so embarrassed. So you said that you had an animal signaling example? Yeah, sure. Um, so we were talking about sexual signaling before, right? Um, with peacock feathers and also counter signaling. And, um, I think it's interesting that in a world of sexual signaling, like I'm a big, strong animal. I have great fitness in a world that that exists. There also exists the, I guess, desire or not, not the desire, the space to subvert that. Um, and, and find other successful ways. You know, for example, everybody uses the cuttlefish. Everybody uses the cuttlefish example. I use the cuttlefish example all the time. Yeah. I totally know what that is. You do, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Stephen, same. you know about the cuttlefish example, right? Of course. It's... But for people who maybe don't, <laughs> you, you, you maybe couldn't hurt to spell it for out. For all the dumbs out there. <laughs> um, there are a bunch of examples in nature where there's two types of males or two types of females, right? And I think we've talked about this a little bit. In another episode, I, this does sound familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in cuddle in certain species of cuttlefish, there is the male that looks male. It's large. He uses he uses very specific color patterns to signal that he is a male and that he's interested in mating. And then there is a second type of male that is a a male that looks a little bit more like a female. Right? So the male that looks a little bit more like a female is taking advantage of the big male's show to, and, and it looking like a female to sneak in 
and mate with the female without the large male noticing, right? So it's subverting the um, the dominant sexual selection strategy that- in order to spread its genes. So that's just really common that you have the the big strong male, and that's how it's signaling its fitness, and the sneaky male. Is that kind of signaling? It's not. I guess it's not signaling, but it's there's the fact of sexual signaling. And then there are ways to subvert it simply because that exists. And I think that when we talk about signaling, maybe counter signaling is showing that you don't care about. Right. You're so good that you don't have to worry about that. You don't, you don't even, you don't even have to be so good. It's just that you, you don't even need to, you don't want to play that game. Right. I am so rich. I do not need to buy the fancy Tesla. You don't have to be so rich. You can just scoot in and say being rich isn't all that great. That's, yeah. I am so desirable in other ways that I don't need to have any money. (laughs) I can so trick you into having sex with me that I don't need to have any, I don't need to actually have money or be a big scary male. Exactly. So there can be uh, distract the male and rape. Okay, Uh, then. In cuttlefish or or other animals, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) In animals worthy of moral judgment. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I believe they call it forced copulation. Right? Sure. Like, they're they're not supposed to use use the term rape when it comes to animals because it's a value laden term. It is a value-laden term, so it makes sense not to use it when it comes to animals. Right. Absolutely. Uh, we use a lot of value-laden terms when it comes to animals, though, in biology. For example, in when you're talking about entomology, so insects, study of insects, and other uh, little arthropods, a lot of times people will talk about natural enemies, and that's the word for carnivores, okay. right? I think that enemy is a value-laden term. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about a predator type and, or, or a group of animals that are either predators or parasitoids. So what do you use? Yeah. Actually, I use natural enemy because that's what people use now. Okay. It's weird in that, entomological literature. But like, there's already such a better word for it, predator, right? No, so- because there's a couple different classes of natural enemies or carnivores. Parasitoid is one and predator is another. And those describe two different groups. You couldn't just say which one you're talking I guess if you're speaking broadly... I guess there has you to be a word for that. So. Yeah, you wouldn't do that if you are writing a paper. Yes, so a predator is a very specific thing, right? So it hunts and and it, it eats an animal instead of living inside of it. And a parasitoid yeah. um, is a parasitic insect that always kills its host. Maybe Whereas they differentiate a parasite it. doesn't always kill its host, but all of those things are, are carnivorous. Maybe they maybe they use natural enemies as opposed to like just enemy because that makes it different and that that makes it its own special thing. But my point uh, is that there's some potentially value laden terms. Um, I don't think that people usually write about rape. Uh, it's usually yeah forced forced copulation. So in academic literature, yeah. I just ran across that when I was reading up on the dolphins. It, it, I'm surprised actually that this didn't come up. I wish we'd gotten to this before because there's. Uh, we were talking about examples of signaling to, you know, convey a message or faking signaling to convey that message insincerely. There's a great example of that with the, the trend in, say, poisonous snakes to be brightly colored. You have, what is it, the... I forget which one's which or what the names are, but there's... There's, the, ma- there's malarian mimicry. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the two kinds of snakes, but they're... Oh, uh, so, you're thinking of coral snakes and king snakes. Yes, and I forget which one's not poisonous, but my point... I do king remember... King snakes are not poisonous. I do remember the rhyme that tells me which one's not poisonous. Ooh, what's and the rhyme? So the rhyme is... It's not terribly helpful. 
Okay, never mind. Oh, then never mind. I'm not going to spread misinformation. No, no it's uh, uh, red touches yellow. You're a dead fellow. Red, right? Yellow touches red. Or I thought it was... Uh, Black red. touches red. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't recall. It was it was red touches yellow. You're a dead fellow. Red touches black. You're okay, Jack. Was was the version <laughs> I heard. Those are the worst rhymes. They're like something something, and you'll see. You'll avoid calamity. Well, so my <laughs> why didn't you make the important part the rhyming one? <laughs> what I liked about it though is that the and I'm, I might be wrong, but I'm assuming that there's an evolutionary incentive to signal your poisonousness uh, because. Possibly. Well, falsely for sure, but also legitimately because you don't want to get fucked with. You don't want to have to try and rely on your 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 venom or your poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, so there's. Um, so you'll signal to people. I'm, I'm sorry. I just the 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 rest of the thought was you'll signal to to potential predators. Hey, the fact that I'm brightly colored means that I'm gonna be able to poison you if you try and eat me. I don't want to have to, so that's why I'm telling you before you get here. And then that gives other organisms the opportunity to fake that. I saw a fly that was paint that had the same similar coloring. It passed for a bee. Until I got a closer look at it, huh. and it—if I hadn't had a chance to get a closer look at it—I'm like, oh, that's definitely a bee. I don't want to get stung. I'm leaving it alone, right? Yeah. So, um, to be more specific about that, there's there is Batesian mimicry and Malarian mimicry. Batesian mimicry is when an otherwise potentially edible or grabbable animal looks like a poisonous animal and benefits from looking like the poisonous animal. So an example would be the coral snake and king snake, right? Where the king snake looks like a coral snake enough that um, anything with experience with coral snakes backs off. And then there is malarian mimicry. And that's when a bunch of poisonous animals or venomous animals look alike because now they um, have strengthened the signal of looking like that, uh, right. right? So now things are more likely to know what it means if something looks like a bee or looks like a monarch butterfly or, or something like that. Because when they run into this other species as well or other thing that looks similar, um, other species that look similar, it's also poisonous or venomous. Has, has uh, nature... Nature... Uh, has has Azathoth figured out how to punish free riders yet? Like, do a bunch of coral snakes ever team up and kill all the king snakes because they're trying to, you know... Because they're diluting their message? Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't think that usually happens. Azathoth re- rewards the creative free rider. For now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give it another million years. But yeah, it does, it does potentially dilute the message, right? Mm-hmm. If they're also edible animals, for example, there are a lot of flies that are stingless that look like bees, mm-hmm. right? Once every single insect looks like a bee, then looking like the bee isn't advantageous anymore. Right. So, I don't know. I don't know what the limits are, but a lot of people are studying it, so maybe I can find some paper for you. Cool. I would love that. It is fun. I love that. That's that's why evolutionary biology... That's that's not why. That's what, that The fact that that's so interesting, that's such a small part of evolutionary biology, is why it's such a fun subject. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, signaling... So much fun. Tell us what you think about it. <laughs> if you think this episode deserves a redux where we actually talk more about signaling theory in a more focused context, and there's, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is if there's interest in this topic, I would like to revisit it and uh, do it in a more styled way. But in any case, uh, you got the the very gist and some fun examples. So uh, are you guys ready to move on to... Listener feedback. Yes, that. Do that. So, on our, excuse me, on our moral philosophy episode, we got a couple very nice comments from somebody called 
Folkmobile 2. And you can see those on the subreddit for the moral philosophy, moral philosophy entry. Now, uh, Folkmobile said a couple of things. One was about moral relativism and the other was about Kant. And Sarah says, Kant is not a consequentialist. His universability criterion is about ensuring a lack of logical contradiction, not about doing unto others as you would have done unto you. During the episode, you fell prey to a common misconception about the categorical imperative. When Kant says to act only according to that maxim whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should not become a universal law, he's not saying to do unto others as you would have done unto you. The argument is not, were everyone to do this, the world would be a worse place. Therefore, this cannot be a categorical imperative. What he means is that you should be able to will that it become a universal law without logical contradiction. For example, theft, this is a quote, theft assumes the existence of property. In order for me to steal something from you, you must first own it. To own something is to place a restriction on who is allowed to take it. Consider the maxim. It is permissible for me to steal. If this maxim were universalized, then everyone would be permitted to take anything, and there could be no property. We have le reached a logical contradiction, so the maxim cannot be true. Anyway, if you want to read more of that, um, hop on over to the subreddit. So that that is exactly the kind of feedback I was hoping for, because we weren't able to give everything the, the attention it deserved in an hour-long podcast covering eight different philosophies. So all I was able to say was, thanks for giving Kant the defense I couldn't muster. He earned a place in the big names of moral philosophy, and I wasn't equipped to give him his due. Folkmobile gives the, the steel man, which is turns out to be Kant's own words, of of Kantian deontology. And I don't know, I must have, but I, mu I didn't mean to say that it was uh, basically like the the golden rule from Christianity, the do unto others, as they had to have From many religious you. traditions. Yeah, but that's... Oh, I didn't mean to make that that equivalency. There's there's a that's sort of like the shorthand for a non-moral philosopher. And if I mentioned it, that might have been what I was going for. But yeah, I didn't mean to equate the two. But anyway, yeah, this was an awesome comeback or not comeback. I guess um, like I said, giving Kant his due. Yeah. And there was another comment on there in defense of moral relativism, <clears throat> which I will only fault you for saying that it was much harder to follow than your deontological defense. But yes, there there is a a not. I, I tried to give the best version of more relativism I could give. If there's a better one out there, uh, you can learn a bit more about it on Folkmobile's uh, comment. If we're talking about the ethical theories this uh, podcast still, the great Nick wrote and said, you had a quick aside to think of some tenets to live your life by, and it reminded me of the eight tenets of Satanism. Personally, I think they're very well thought out and applicable. And he links to the Satanic Temple, and I would just like to say I am a big fan of the, the Satanic Temple. I am a donor to them. I helped create the bronze Baphomet that they put next to the Ten Commandments. Oh, and the, how the, lovely. They're great people. They, they are doing God's work. They, Satan's work. Let's, the, let's be clear. The, well, you know, a god. <laughs> they, no, they, they, they're a very secular uh, organization that uses uh, Satanism. This particular Satanic Temple, I mean, obviously not all Satanists are the same way, but this Satanic Temple that uses Satanism as a cover to uh, challenge religious abuses by... By by government uh, exploitations exactly, yeah. and uh, most recently they had the after school Satan program, which is for schools that allow Bible study clubs. They come through and they're like, allow us to establish our after school Satan club because you cannot discriminate against us by on religious grounds. And then the schools either have to allow the after school Satan club, or they have to say there cannot be any religious clubs in the school. I see that as a not completely 
bad endeavor. I, I, I can oh, get behind. I it. love the endeavor. I consider trolling for great justice. I have a request, mm-hmm. and that is, I want some pretty cool demonic statues that are cheap, and I can put in my backyard. So somebody get on that. Maybe we should get on that. Maybe. You I'm mean, like, a... buy them for you or send you links to where you can buy them? Link me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Can do. I'm reading through the tenets of, of Satanism right now. One if... should strive to act with compassion and empathy towards all creatures in accordance with reason. That is not some... That, that's, that's a nugget of wisdom you did not come across in the Bible. So, uh, I'm on board. Um, I think it probably is, but... Not, not that clearly. If you've read your Bible cover to cover, it, it, there's, uh, it's... It, for every time it says something like that, it says you know, slay open your enemies and smash their fetuses ac- upon the rocks and stuff. Like, it wow. is it is pretty... To the extent it's that, the big book of multiple choice. Yeah. You can have the angry, whip-wielding Jesus, or you can have the happy-turn-the-other-cheek Jesus. I'm talking my, my, my man, the Old Testament God. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, though, too. I mean, in half his moods, he's, like, basically a hippie, and in his other, other half, he lit the fires of the Inquisition. So right. Jesus isn't, like, the... Isn't as, he's not as clear as you would hope God would have been when writing his book, right? <laughs> yes. It's almost like he was a conflicted person. What? Uh, there was also one minor note from Ropus777 saying that I was conflating negative reinforcement with punishment, which is true. It's one of those things that I theoretically know because I read about it, but I always forget. Punishment, he said, tries to make be- behavior being punished stop, whereas negative reinforcement tries to make the behavior being negatively enforced occur more often. Yes. And negative reinforcement can be taking things away. Yeah, taking instead bad things instead of away. Reward, or taking positive things away. Oh, wait, hold on. There's negative reinforcement. <laughs> then there's positive reinforcement. And damn it, there's like four of these. I got now I'm, now I've tied myself in a loop. Anyway, yes, good stuff. Google the terms. Fact check us, left and right. It's uh, just much more fun to say negative reinforcement than punishment. It's very Orwellian that way. Also, I think it's how it's used in common parlance. Yeah. Yes, I lean consequentialist, but I, I think one of the things to take away from... Having well reasoned positions for from from multiple perspectives, and we kind of alluded to this with like the, the mental counsel and stuff, but it's not necessary to pick a moral philosophy and stick with it, in, especially in contexts where like it might not make sense to you or where you're not comfortable doing it. So I gave the example of um, the burning building, and you can save the the painting. I don't know if this was in that episode or another one, but you can save the painting of your baby. Now the good consequentialist says you you save the the Van Gogh and sell it and save more babies than just your one. But no human could do that. And so if you know that it'll ruin your life, even at the cost of killing other kids, it's still, you don't, I don't think you're a bad person if you're not a consequentialist in that particular scenario, right? The, the goal is, for me... It's a tough ask to ask someone to ruin their own life. Yeah. Um, or even to think of, like, a society where everyone was that callous about their kids or their loved ones or something, right? So, like, part of it is the grander scale. You kind of want to to have that that feeling that you are more important to the people who love you than a Rembrandt is. Yeah, it would be weird if my or parents... Or Picasso or whatever. Yeah, it would be weird if my parents treated me as just as valuable as people they had never met or people that have don't exist yet or something, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Speaking of people... Westward 101 said... Katrina seemed to strongly value having people in a child's life for at least the duration of childhood. Okay, so we're going back to the the kids episode. There are quite a few people who have been influential in my children's lives, but are no longer. Close friends that have moved or drifted off, family members who we see for a couple weeks once a year, etc. It may be nice to have a village, but no village stays the same. And really, there's only so much you can control for. People die, break up, move. Etc. I thought that was that was kind of a decent point as well. It's a decent point. 
I think I was talking a little, um, I think I may have come across a little bit too strong about the importance of just having continuity and the same people who are trustworthy. I think that there need to be at least some, I think there need to be some of those people. I think that you need to have someone who in the end is completely responsible and having that person disappear and be replaced by some someone else is hugely destructive in some you know kids lives that sounds but, like a criticism that could be made of like typical parent-child households too right like a parent could die they could break up etc yeah so, so but so those are traumatic events yeah. yes but like it, i guess saying that they also happen here is you know true but not necessarily a criticism the so to one... have some people moving in and out is fine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and normal, and kids deal with it just fine. To have all of the people moving in and out and and no one person that they can look to to be steady and, and be always there, I think is probably pretty traumatic. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the kids episode, Not Without Incident said, It can't be unethical to create people that want to live, for the most part, regardless of any suffering they experience. I have a problem with that because because of the the will to live instinct. I think there's a lot of people who want to live because of that instinct, even if suffering would be really great. Wait, what? Oh, even if suffering was, was very high. Yeah, in their life. Just just having the not wanting to die instinct might reduce might reduce quality of life below what is tolerable, but yet they still want to live. Well, the good news is if somebody doesn't exist yet, mm-hmm. then they don't have the desire to live or suffering. Right. He, he also said that the argument... Oh, not he. Sorry. They also said the argument about the potential of your children to cause harm to others seems more powerful, but avoiding action based on potential future harms could get dicey. Basing, uh, going off my comment, someone has to figure out how to take all this carbon out of the atmosphere... Uh, they claim that it could be argued that it's, uh, it could be argued that it's immoral to not have children. <laughs> hey. Because one of these children's gotta figure no, this thing out, no, right? No, Otherwise no, we're all doomed. No, no, no. So, I mean, that's a, that's a cost benefit analysis right there. That's all that is. Um, is it more likely that your kid, you know, having a bunch of kids is going to lead to them um, figuring out how to take carbon out of the atmosphere, or is it more likely that having more kids is going to lead to a bunch more kids putting a lot more carbon in the atmosphere and it being a problem? And you're assuming it's the latter, but has there actually been any sort of research done into this to I mean, I work think on I, anything other than our... There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of arguments about that. For example, um, as the global population increases, technological innovation increases, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, there, there are these trade-offs, and it's really, really hard to tell where the truth lies. I'm a big fan of reducto ad absurdum for intuition pumps. Uh, that's the, the concept of reducing an argument to its most absurd implication to try and draw some useful intuitions out of it. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely true that if none of us have kids, and no one alive right now could get all this carbon out of the atmosphere, then it would never get done. Right? So somebody's got to have kids because somebody's going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not going to be done by anyone currently alive. <laughs> I'm not sure what we can do with that, but it does seem to imply that there's uh, at least not literally nothing to that point. Uh, aside from that there's probably an ideal number of kids. Yeah, no, that that's in there. I'm just saying that, that it does... Uh, I, I was... The, the point of the, of, the, of the absurdum was to say that 
was to check the, I guess, the one scenario under which, all right, no kids, what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, that's bad. So we now we, we can cross that off our list of things to consider. Now we're looking on the spectrum from, you know, greater than zero, right? Anyway, that was also brought out as a cheeky example to try and throw out that useful tool that I like. All possible kids, probably also not a good idea. <laughs> right. Right. So, because, I mean... All possible kids, if everyone has as many as possible, well, then we're out of food, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all you have to do is just turn it up to turn it up to 11 or down to negative 1 well, and just see how stupid it gets, and then you can disprove those extremes. really useful stuff. So we need to determine the ideal number of kids. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> to someone who would... That wasn't, like I said, that wasn't the best example. I'm sorry, what? I'm making fun of you. No, you're fine. When you mentioned, when we were talking about earlier about, you know, making the podcast and, you know, I don't really talk about it that I do it with people, but one of the reasons I wanted to do it was because I do have a lot of fun, um, or not a lot, but some, what I consider fun and useful techniques for thinking through problems. And the, re- the reductive absurdum is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, and I remembered that when I was, when we were talking about putting this podcast together, I wanted to try and plug those once in a while. So that, yeah, that, no. that just happened to be on my mind. And I found Do a it. really, really lame spot to stick it in there. But we'll see. We'll All find right. a better spot another time. <laughs> I bet you can pull that one out again. Probably. I've probably done it before, too. Our uh, episode 20, What's Important, the one where what are politicians not talking about, I kind of I kind of shat on farm subsidies because I didn't like the idea that, like, oh, we're going to pay you and pretend you had a good year. Just, like, that doesn't make sense in any other business model. If, if I, if I'm running, whatever, you know, any example, you don't, the government doesn't just give you money to keep you in business. Right. And I kind and I kind of stopped there. Azrael made the good point that, look, uh, they say, quote, on farm subsidies, not saying they're necessarily done perfectly, but ensuring that farmers don't go broke because of one year of terrible weather is pretty important for securing our food supply, unquote. That's a solid point, and I should have been more well-reasoned, so I needed to get that out there. It's a lot like a subsidized uh, farm insurance, crop, a subsidized crop insurance. I mean, it's more than just that. There are, there are other issues. One of my major issues like is that bills. they they destroy any product that that they're compensated for that they didn't sell, mm-hmm. which to me is insane. They don't just, just give it a, the prices up. They don't give it a yeah, but that's not good for anybody. You know, they could give it to farm animals. They could give it to people. They could they could do it. They could do something with it. But to have it literally just destroyed and made useless is a complete joke. Economists tell us why farm subsidies are not a good idea. Also, if you don't destroy it, it drives down the price, which is the exact opposite of what they're trying to accomplish with the farm bill. They want to keep the price up at a level where they can uh, stay in business. Bloop, bloop. Yeah, but still. <laughs> they, could, they could give it away if they to give somebody it away, that it wouldn't otherwise buy it. Oh, who wouldn't otherwise buy food? Third world. Uh, then you destroy the, the local farming community in that third world. Uh, the U.S. gives a lot of food aid. And I've heard that it has some negative consequences. Uh, going way back, uh, this is also not without incident, saying, if we consider the moral weight of bacteria based on our inability to model them, do we have to give the same to quadruple pendulums? And, to clarify the AlphaGo point, we can't predict the output of a DNN, which is a deep neural network, I believe, mm. without to, uh, we can't predict the output of a DNN without running it. So I would agree with Ineash, which is why I'm reading this, I like being agreed with, <laughs> that AlphaGo is in the same category as the bacterium, in that we can observe its behavior, but not predict it analytically. I don't see why the fact that the neural network is running on a computer is super relevant. That was what I meant when I was saying that AlphaGo is complicated. It's, yes, we did create it, but we don't know exactly how it's going to, what it's going to output. For sure. No, I can see where that, that point was made. I, I still stand by, I think that 
complexity isn't shouldn't be your go-to metric for something's moral value, right? Right. Uh, you can make a really complicated deep mind computer, but if all it can do is play Go, mm-hmm. then it's probably less valuable than, you know, any animal. Yeah. So. You can make a really complicated pendulum system. Yes. I need to look up. What is the four pendulum? Quadruple pendulum? Yeah. It's just four pendulums hooked up together, and you cannot predict in advance how it's going to go through its motions. Oh, because it's so complicated. Strange. It seems like something you should be able to predict, but obviously it's not. That that wraps up um, our listener feedback. Thank you so much for listening. Come to our website, thebayesianconspiracy.com, or to our subreddit, Bayesian Conspiracy subreddit. The Bayesian Conspiracy, I think. But yeah, they'll find it. Anyway, bye. Bye. I waved. Bye. Bye.